Welcome to The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a third-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. And I'm Adam Swirsky, a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We realize the educational power of podcasts for medical education. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings to create a resource specifically for interventional radiology. We will be the hosts of this episode, and we hope that you will find it both educational and enjoyable. On this episode of The Sound of IR, we'll learn more about pediatric interventional radiology from Dr. Leah Braswell, a pediatric interventional radiologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Braswell, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. It's our pleasure. So uh, Dr. Braswell, we'd love to hear your story of how you got here. So first, what made you decide to become a radiologist? Well, my, uh, my dad is a country doctor, self-described. He's a family practitioner. And when I went to medical school, I wanted to be just like my dad. And he said, no, 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 I think you need to be a radiologist. And I really thought that that was kind of the craziest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> I didn't know a lot about radiology, but it turns out that, that I think he knew my personality well enough to know that I would really like the imaging and the, um, and the figuring things out type of type of approach um it it was it was a little later on that i that i realized i liked all my rotations enough to to have a really broad um exposure to medicine but i didn't like any of them enough to to want to do it so radiology was a was a good fit for me i think i decided late in my third year of medical school yeah as as someone in the end of my third year of medical school i definitely <laughs> i definitely can understand that sentiment uh yep. so, so what led you specifically into pediatric radiology? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. And I think um, the, the best way to answer that is every specialty I considered, I, I kind of was drawn to the ped side of it. That's probably more just my nature than anything else. And really, it's who you know instead of what you know. All my important mentors and all, the, um, and all my rotations and some even my family connections and undergraduate connections happened to be at, at the children's hospital. And I just, I just enjoyed my time at the children's hospital more than anywhere else. So that was sort of a no brainer. As soon as I decided on radiology, I knew it would be, it'd be ped radiology. And I, I mentioned that at all my interviews, it sort of was a nice way to, to set me apart. And I think people remembered me for that. It, it was a nice fit. Yeah, that makes sense. So you became the, uh, that pediatric uh, radiologist <laughs> applicant, right? Exactly, exactly. They'd show me their children's hospital, and that was it was kind of fun, but I, it was neat to know going into it um, that peds was really where I was supposed to be. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of uh, a lot of everything in medicine is about who you know and and what you're exposed to and what you um, enjoy the most, obviously. Yes. So, what made you decide to to either focus or or, uh, or do a lot of uh, pediatric interventional radiology? Yeah, and it kind of, it really relates to, to everything we've talked about so far. I, I really liked, of course, direct patient care and being around patients. When I was visiting my dad in that small town where he practiced, I'd go to clinic with him and everybody would be like, you need to be in clinic. You need to be able to see patients. And why would you choose radiology? And, you know, that, that's, that's a common stereotype and it's a misconception, but it helped me realize that, that interventional would be a good fit for me. Um, I really liked the hands-on um, component. And again, my mentor, I, he sort of picked me and I picked him early in residency, the same, the same thing. It's like, who you know, what you're exposed to. And he just 
that's um, Charles James at, at Arkansas Children's Hospital. He just mm -hmm. had a fire for his job and a passion for his job that that stuck with me. And I, I once I realized that I could do interventional and do peds, I was hooked. So yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So how's your current practice organized? Yeah, so I am. I'm at a big hospital, and and that means that I'm part of a big practice. So I. I'm at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, pediatric centers in the country. And um, we have a group of about, I think about 30 radiologists, and I'm part of that group. I'm also part of a group of six interventional radiologists within that group. So my day-to-day -day is at a hospital, um, uh, at a big acute care center. I spend a little bit of time uh, at an outpatient center, maybe a couple of days a month, but everything I do is, is really hospital based and, and part of a big, a big system where there's a lot of support um, and a practice that's, that's really well established. I have, I have some days of diagnostic every, every week, which is kind of unique um, and probably a little more common in the peds world versus the adult mm -hmm. IR world. So I do about two days in the reading room and I do a half day of IR clinic and about two and a half or sometimes three days of IR every week. And, and those are variable. They, they vary week to week. Um, but that half day of clinic is a, is a really important part of my practice. Would you say you enjoy the variety of, uh, of such a practice doing different things on different days? Yeah, that's a perfect fit for me. I, I find that too many days in a row in the reading room and I'm, I'm ready to get back to the IR lab and, and vice versa. I, I like having that that breadth of exposure during a, a given week. And, and some weeks it's all one or all the other, but that's, that has worked really, really well for my personality and my attention span. Um, and it's also something I can always fall back on. It gives me two skill sets that, you know, if for some reason um, I join a practice that needs me in one way or another more heavily in the future, I really, I'm, I'm pretty flexible. So I like that aspect of my job. Yeah. Definitely. And that sort of leads to another question I was going to ask you, which is uh, at SIR LA, there was a lot of statistics or research shown about the division of time in uh, adult IR between diagnostics and, and IR time. Sure. I've never really seen that sort of data or, or how common it is or what is the most common, I guess, because your group is 30 pediatric radiologists, correct? That's correct. But only six of you do uh, interventions, right? That's correct. And tell me what the adult mix is. I mean, are most adult, I, I picture the average adult interventional radiologist in IR every day. And I, I don't know if that's the case or if that's just the case where I trained. And um, so it's, it's hard for me to kind of know what to, how to compare. So tell me, I mean, educate me about that part too. At least what um, we were presented at SIR um, was that there's a breakdown of about 25% of radiologists who consider themselves IRs who do okay. 100% IR. Um, okay. There's another 25% that do less than 5% IR, but consider themselves interventional radiologists. And, huh. then, and then there's this middle 50% that's somewhere between 100 or 5% and 100%. Okay. I definitely recall hearing that uh, a lot of those percentages were based on what stage the uh, practicing IR was at in their career. So someone that was older might um, start transitioning to more of a diagnostic focus later in their career. So that might represent the, the people who are uh, saying, you know, 5% IR. 
That makes sense. Well, and I'll tell you what, what I know about pediatric IR and, and, and groups is that um, peds IR is not a universal resource, right? A lot of places don't have mm-hmm. a peds IR person uh, or a practice. And so groups that want to have peds IR, um, they need to hire you for your IR skills, right? To, to round out their group, but they can't have three or four people just doing IR because there's not enough work for three or four people to just do IR. But but yeah. but it's a vicious circle, right? So you can't have a sustainable call situation in life if there's only one or two of you. So yeah. so the group evol- evolution in most places is that people do a mix. And that's not universally true, of course, but most places need you to do they need you to read film someday and they need you to be in the lab someday because only one or two people can be in the lab in an average place, even a big place. We only have two doctors uh, per day at this point. We're, we're, we're working on plans to get to three a day. So that's, that's why we have to be in, in most places, we have to be um, hands-on in the reading room as well. Yeah. I think uh, from my understanding from SARs and, and especially in private practice situations, that's, that's a common balance to have to to strike sure. and uh sure. you know in the future we're going to be doing some episodes on private practice ir and those differences between that and academia but um that that sort of leads to another question i had which is uh you're at nationwide children's is there an uh, affiliation with uh, any of the residency programs or fellowship programs uh, around columbus yes great question so we have residents from and I'm, I could misquote this, I think four different training programs. The the most um, common residents on our campus, of course, are, are from Ohio State, which is right here in town, but we have a few from, from out of town as, as well who come for two or three month blocks. Um, so, and they all have such a varied background and a unique exposure to PEDS. Some see PEDS pretty often in their residencies and some only see it when they're here with us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we have our own fellows uh, in diagnostic imaging for peds and in IR. And, and so your time with those residents and fellows is probably much more clinical based and less of like a teaching uh, situation, if I'm understanding correctly. Um, yeah, exactly. So I'm only I'm only lecturing um, a couple times a, a year at, at Ohio State. So most of my exposure, med students, residents, fellows is, is really hands on. Yeah. Yep. So Dr. Braswell, um, what are your most common procedures during the week? I I think it's it's really easy to to mirror my practice on what you would might expect from an adult IR group, meaning that we do a lot of vascular access and we do a lot of enteric access. So, in kids, uh, pick line is is maybe our most common procedure, um, and we do a lot of of G tubes and GJ tubes for our for our chronic patients who who need feeding. Um, the, the rest is, is also in many ways similar to an adult practice. A lot of, a lot of biopsy and drainage work. I mean, those are all bread and butter for, for any practice that I know. Mm-hmm. This, this practice, this place is, is also known for being a vascular anomalies referral center. Mm-hmm. And that's my niche subspecialty area as well. So we take care of a lot of patients from all over that, that get referred here for, um, vascular anomalies and for aneurysmal bone cysts and a few other just sort of um, really niche specific type procedures. And that's, that's what I do all week. Yeah. Interesting. How did you come about um, finding your niche in vascular anomalies like that? 
Yeah, this is going to be a recurring theme because it's all mentorship, mentorship, mentorship. And I um, really found a group of people in Arkansas that had um, that had a passion and experience working with patients with vascular anomalies. Um, again, not everybody's experience is going to look like that, but that was a, a really great way for me to find a place where I could make a big difference and, and have colleagues really from all over the world that get to know one another around those issues. I think uh, that specifically is an episode we have planned on doing in the future is vascular anomalies, which hopefully we can have you on for that and we can dive a little deeper into the pathology of those. Perfect. And I know I saw your case on Twitter uh, the other day, of the <laughs> aneurysmal bone cyst. Um, so talking specifically about the common things that you do that I imagine a lot of uh, trainees will see in other pediatric IR uh, rotations is pick line access. Sure. Can you tell me uh, what, what should a medical student know going into a case? Yeah, so I, I, first of all, I love having medical students with me because they're getting to see an area of, of medicine that, that is not as well known as, as their basic internal medicine um, type of exposure. And so it's really a way for them to see how much impact radiology has on all of our, on all of our kids, all the patients. Um, I, I like for them to know that what they've already heard on peds is that kids aren't little adults and babies aren't little kids. Um, they need to, they need to keep an open mind um, about, about what they're going to see and how we're going to, how we're going to interact together. They need to know that, um, Everything we do is with a different level of sedation, a different level of conversation with families, parents, um, and that, and that the basics of line access are, are in many ways exactly the same as adults. Um, I, I, we like to we like to draw a lot and talk about cell danger technique and and the basics. Those things are all really relevant. But when you're working on someone who's tiny, tiny, small, it's it's important for for the medical students to know that um, every little tiny micro motion of our hands is, is really a delicate thing. And uh, I think there's just a lot of, a lot of respect you can gain from working with, with tiny babies and vascular access. And it's, it's something that I never expect anyone to master, master quickly. Um, we have a lot of, res a lot of respect for, for vascular access and little tiny babies. It's a difficult thing. It's one of the hardest things we train our fellows to do. And I want medical students to know that. What about with the uh, G-tubes and, and other sort of tube procedures that, that you mentioned before that are also very common? Yeah, I just think that that's another really good example of how we have such a small margin of error. So if you are, are inside the stomach with your puncture versus outside, you might just be a few millimeters away. And I think that that's why we like for our trainees to really have, have mastered a procedure in an adult before they're able to apply it down to a smaller person because um, just a few millimeters difference, just a few degrees of, of angulation, and those things make a huge difference when you're, when you're working with small spaces and small areas. You have to really, really have mastered the imaging skills and the, and the hands-on skills um, before you can apply them to little kids. So are there any procedures that uh, might be performed in both adults and children, but uh, are vastly different in children? Um, aside from, you know, the size considerations and vital signs and anesthesia considerations that you've mentioned? Yeah, that's a great question. And I always like to talk about um, newborn nephrostomy tube access as a good example of this, of this concept. When you are 
placing a nephrostomy tube in a, in a little baby. Um, sometimes you look at, you're reviewing their ultrasound ahead of time. Most of the time we're doing this for congenital obstruction, like a really dilated UPJ obstruction or a dilated ureter obstruction, that type of thing. And we're asked literally in the first few days of a baby's life to decompress that, that dilated collecting system and put a, and put a pigtail tube in that. Um, and if you've mastered that in adults, it can be pretty straightforward. When you review the ultrasound or the CT ahead of time, you see a big target, you think, oh, that's great. I can, I can hit that target. I can mm -hmm. put a drain in it. In babies, the kidney is really soft and it really pushes away from you. And there's a, um, there's a drawing, I'll tweet about it, that shows this concept really well. But you can puncture in to the kidney with your needle and you can have urine pouring out and you can high five your tech and advance your wire and high five your tech again because everything's going really well. And as you place your dilators one after the other and advance your pigtail catheter, it's really easy to be outside the collecting system because the whole thing pushes away wow. from you while you're dilating. And again, you just have tiny margin of error. And I think that's a very classic presentation of how newborn and pediatric structures they just feel different and you can puncture a vein and think you're in and have a and and the adult vein may be very forgiving the pediatric tissues are just not very forgiving and you have to be um, just more vigilant and more aware of of the difficulty of the of what may look like a, a very chip shot straightforward procedure so there's a lot of humility in peds ir and i really like that example um, to, to demonstrate when you're talking about why it's harder and impedes sometimes. I think that's a really good example. So, you know, you mentioned specifically, you know, kidneys being such a fragile and soft tissue in kids and how different that is. So, so I know in, in some places where there's not pediatric interventional radiology or, or things like that, um, th there are situations in which an adult interventional radiologist will, will be the, um, the, the provider doing, you know, the procedure you just described. How are those providers successful with that? Is it because of their rotations they've done in pediatric radiology during their residency or or what leads leads to success with that? Yeah, that's a good question. And then the the adult IR docs that I've that I've known who have who have had to or wanted to uh, cover cover peds, I think they'll they'll tell you again, they have a they have a sort of a high threshold. Um, for wanting to to cover peds in that situation because it can be difficult. Anything's difficult if you don't do it every day, right? We're good at what we do. And I think that years of experience is really the only way. Um, if you're not doing it every day, I think you have to really harken back on those on those rotations that you had in residency. Um, and I I encourage IR fellows and, and now IR residents to, to advocate for that pediatric elective time. I think it's really important for you at least to to have some exposure to, to the practice, so you know what is different and what's not different, um, and then you know if you're going to be if you're going to be in a situation where you're covering for a, for a peds place, you can learn those tips and tricks um, in those elective rotations. I think that's going to be crucial as the as the new residency gets going. And just one comment on that as well. I, I know at least here in Kalamazoo, one of the interventional radiologists I've worked with um, had a situation with a kid. And it seems like another benefit is having colleagues that are in pediatric radiology and pediatric IR in other places in the country. Cause you know, he was able to call up that colleague, ask the question he had right. and, and lean on his experience to uh, be able to help him be successful. 
Oh, absolutely. And that's such a, that's such the spirit of our little subspecialty. I mean, we, we have uh, docs on our listserv, you know, they'll send out a call. They'll send out an email at 830 at night. I have a patient coming in on the helicopter with XYZ situation. What would you recommend for, for catheter placement and what should I treat with? And, you know, there'll be four or five responses by an hour later. That's certainly the nature of the nature of how we relate to one another. And that's, again, that's, that was a huge deal to me when I could tell that as a medical student and resident, that's the kind of field I want to be in. That, that kind of spirit I think is, is crucial. Like you mentioned. I think that's great. On that note, since you uh, just mentioned the helicopter situation, uh, what are some of the more common acute procedures um, in the pediatric IR setting? Yeah. So on a, on a um, typical call weekend, the things that, the things that can't wait, we have a lot of abdominal drainage, abscess drainage with, with perforated appendicitis. We have a lot of chest tube placement for paranemonic effusions in pneumonia. We do a lot of vascular access that can't wait. Um, and then there's certainly um, arterial work that needs to be done acutely. We see less trauma than the adults do. Uh, at, an, an active extravasation from a spleen after a car wreck in a, in a child literature shows you can watch that in a stable patient. Um, so I would say that our our visceral embolization angiography after hours is 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 less common than adults, even though we see just as many car wrecks. Um, I, I'm I'm more often called upon to embolize um, hemoptysis in our cystic fibrosis patients. I would say that's more common to me than embolizing for trauma. Um, but but we see you know after hours cerebral angiography for for hemorrhage and um, and like I said biopsies drainages vascular access the whole the whole gamut all of those things happen on a weekend and and I'll tell you what's what I see more and more of now in our teenagers is a lot of um, venous thrombolysis so for for whatever reason um, we're seeing more um, lower extremity thrombus and um, some PEs even in in younger kids now. Um, and I don't know why, and it maybe maybe that's just anecdotal that it seems to be increasing. Um, but we we do a lot of thrombolysis work as well. I I know one common theme in adult IR is how the diagnostic uh, knowledge is so fundamental to being successful in, in the interventions that that are that are done. How does that play out in pediatric IR? Yeah, and I think I think I would probably answer that question just like an adult um, interventional radiologist would. I I have found that it it makes me much more um, engaged and intelligent when I'm when I'm handling consults and when I know what I'm seeing on the on the scans. I think um, I think having the Peds Fellowship has really helped me. Um, reviewing neonatal films and reviewing all the all of the fractures that we see that are different in adults and um the the pathology of course is 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 very different and the imaging is different and i think i've always been a really big believer in in the very best imagers um are are really set up well to become interventional radiologists and i think that the imaging is is a huge part of what we do even when we don't realize it even though my hands are working um at the table my eyes are on that screen and I think um I almost take it for granted at times but but having a keen eye is is the biggest part of what I do I imagine it's the same thing as when you understand uh you know the the softness of the kidney uh you know just just generally speaking it's probably the same with certain imaging findings that are 
just classic in pediatric radiology that without that diagnostic uh, training, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to uh, to know as well. Oh, that's definitely true. Definitely. So we've talked a lot about interventions and and the diagnostic foundation. At the beginning, you mentioned clinic and how that was an important factor in you deciding to become a pediatric interventional radiologist. So what role does clinic currently play in PEDS IR? Yeah, so most um, most PEDS practices now have have dedicated clinic time. Um, I would say that that has really increased in the past 10 years, um, as it has in the adult world. Um, we, we all recognize that that gives us a, a really strong standing and foothold with our patients and with our referring colleagues. And we run a clinic very professionally. And I think that that's, that's great for our image, but it's great for our, more importantly, for our patients. And we, we see several patients um, in half day slots. We sort of protect half a day at a time for our, for our docs and clinic. And um, I would say maybe half the kids I see in a, in a half day are pre-procedure and half are, are procedure follow-ups. And that, of course, varies um, from day to day. But, but we go over the entire procedure that's proposed and whether the patient is a candidate. And I do a full H&P for basically all my new patients. And then I get to see them, I get to see them grow up and get bigger on follow-up. I see all my long-term patients at least annually. And um, that really is, I think, much, much better for them to get to know a doctor over time. And it certainly adds to my enjoyment of my job and makes me want to go to clinic every week. What are the patients that you end up doing long-term follow-up on? What are the clinical reasons that they, that you have long-term follow-up with them? I would say 90% of mine are vascular anomalies. Um, and of course that reflects more on my practice um, in particular than it does the specialty as a whole. But I, I see all my vascular anomalies patients for a long time because they have lifelong problems. Right. And I tell them on the first visit that I can't cure your, your malformation, we can make it a lot better and make your symptoms better. But they know at the, in the, in the get go that we're going to, we're going to have a long-term relationship. And again, that's, that's why I was drawn to that particular area. But, but it's it's true of even even a short term patient, even a say I'm treating an osteoid osteoma and the tibia. Um, I don't necessarily have to see them back uh, every year, but I certainly like to like to know how they're doing in follow up, and and then we space it out um, over time. And if they get a cure, they don't have to come back and see me. But um, certainly they know they know they can, and they have all of our all of our cards and contact information, and and they know that we run a clinic just like their pediatrician runs a clinic. Are there populations that as medicine has evolved that you see more often as a pediatric interventional radiologist than say one would have seen 20 years ago? Maybe they're getting um, complications that you end up treating that, you know, 20 years ago, these patients would have died young. As an example, I know you mentioned cystic fibrosis and, and obviously those patients live longer now than they used to. Is there any other examples you could think of? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not thinking of anything off the top of my head that has really, really changed. Um, our CF patients um, are absolutely living longer. Um, and, and what's interesting is we're actually not doing as many, um, as many embolizations as we used to. Their lung disease is managed in such a way that they aren't, they're not dying of hemoptysis. They're getting bridges to transplant and, and really longer term success with medications. That's probably the best, that's probably the best example, actually. Up to what age uh, do you see patients typically? Is it, is it like um, up to age 21, 18? And at what point do you transition uh, a long-term patient to 
perhaps an adult interventional radiologist? Yeah, good question. So that's going to really depend on your your particular hospital's policy. Um, we take care of patients up, up through the age of 21, and we have a large number of exceptions to that. And that is actually really evolving over time as well, because our congenital heart disease patients at this hospital are, are living to be adults. Um, so many of our chronic disease kids in the in the GI world and in cystic fibrosis pulmonary world are are living longer than they than they used to and as I mentioned my vascular anomalies patients um, have their lesions for life so they are on the exception list at, at every place I've worked uh, as if you have a vascular anomaly you can come to a children's hospital because that's where the experts tend to hang out so I I have exceptions in place for for adults with vascular anomalies or with or with the bone lesions that we treat, and they basically get immediate immediate clearance to stay at our hospital. We do work closely with the pediatricians when we're transitioning um, uh, teenagers to adults for all the other indications. So, so say there's a 18 or 19 year old patient who has been fed by GJ tube um, all their life. Um, as part of the hospital's process, they typically have a main pediatrician who helps manage their transition to adult care, and we're involved in those conversations by listing the size of their GJ tube and including the pertinent images of their internal anatomy so that the next um, practitioner is able to navigate their duodenum and place the tube um, in its optimum place. And so we, we like to stay involved in those conversations um, so that our patients can get that transition of care, I'll, I'll often pull up every pick a cystic fibrosis patient has ever had if for some reason they're moving away or they're moving to adult care, and I will write down where their stenoses are and how difficult it has been to have left upper arm picks. So that's a, those are good examples of how we help, um, help the bigger team uh, transition to adult care. So shifting gears a bit now, as there have been major changes in IR with the new IR-DR integrated residency uh, focused on clinical training, what changes do you foresee in the educational pathways of pediatric radiology, uh, considering both diagnostic and interventional? I wish we knew the, the full answer to this question because I've really been thinking about it a lot really over the last several years. And I, I think that however you want to become a pediatric interventional radiologist, you should get to be one. And I want people to be well-trained in the IRDR pathway and, they, and, and the residency, and they will. They're gonna come to us uh, really well-rounded and they're gonna need a year of, of pediatric fellowship to become a PEDS-IR um, practitioner at a high level. And I think that's, I think that's a good thing. I think um, there's, there's no reason to think that they're, that the new trainees are going to suffer or be at any disadvantage when they come to to PEDSIR fellowship. I think, as we've as we've mentioned, they're going to need to consider whether they need that extra year in PEDS imaging to to practice at a at a children's hospital where they might um, be covering uh, pediatric radiology and PEDSIR, or or perhaps take a totally different track and maybe they'll be completely well trained to practice adult IR and PEDS IR. So it's really what you want mm -hmm. out of it dictates what you put into it. I'm interested to, to see how it's going to go for our diagnostic radiology residents who then have 
have interest and want to explore peds IR and then they get to their peds diagnostic fellowship and they're like hmm, I might really want to do some IR I'm interested to see how that's going to evolve um, our, our fellowship is not an ACGME accredited fellowship so it's a peds IR fellowship uh, I think 13 or 14 places on this continent have that fellowship it'll be up to those fellowships to decide whether that pediatric radiologist is now eligible for the fellowship and I'm getting I'm, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here but I think it's an interesting concept if you are a radiologist a diagnostic radiologist and you want to do peds IR I'm of the opinion and there, there are differing opinion I'm of the opinion we should let you in the door and let you do our fellowship you will have had rotations in IR as a resident you will be exposed to peds IR when you're a peds diagnostic fellow um, that's the training I took. I, I can't imagine criticizing it and saying it's not good enough all of a sudden now. So I want to, I want those people to have a place um, in the future of our field. And I think that, I think the world's big enough for all different types of, of pathways. It always has been. We've always had people who have had different pathways end up in peds IR. Some are adult trained, some are not. It's, it's, there's a lot of flexibility. And I, I think we need to continue to foster that flexibility. So as a follow-up question, um, a lot of the, the newer uh, integrated pathways are, have a focus in clinical training and, and require that uh, residents and fellows go through uh, ICU rotations and other services. Do you think that's important to uh, think about when designing the pediatric IR education of the future, um, spending time in the NICU and uh, the PICU, for example? Absolutely. And I wish I had had more of that exposure as a as an intern and as a resident. Um, I have a partner whose intern year was pediatrics and I think that was I don't know 20 25 years ago and his his practice is still benefiting from the fact that he spent time in the NICUs and in the ICUs. Um, of course it's not necessary to do a good job but I think that that if you know that you have an interest in peds going in, you should stand up for that exposure early in those training years um, and really ask for it. It's, it's only going to help you. And that's maybe may have to come at the sacrifice of an adult ICU month. Right. But I think if you know that peds is, is an interest that's um, that's invaluable and you'll never get another chance to spend a month in an ICU uh, at a peds hospital. So I think, I think you should stand up for it from the get go. I like to hear that because personally, that's something that I'm definitely very interested in is the pediatric population. So, so going off of that, if, if there are medical students out there listening to this that are interested in pediatric IR, what steps should they take to learn more about the field? Well, a couple things. I think the, um, the PED service line information on the SIR, the RFS website is really good and it's growing. And I, I've only come across it in the past few months, and I've been pretty amazed. I think that's one, probably the best online resource for, for getting you some exposure to, to what it's about and what it looks like to be PEDS IR. Um, I think it's super important uh, to, to find somebody in your area or, or anywhere in the world, honestly, who can can be involved in mentoring and just emailing back and forth. I think getting connected to somebody in PEDS IR is huge and again it can never hurt i think the sooner you can do that and the more um, relationships you can have with peds ir people the better 
and if you need to get connected with somebody you send me a tweet i mean i'm happy to personally do that and i have friends and we can distribute people and we want medical students involved and interested and and following us and and learning more about it and uh, you can follow dr braswell on twitter at leah braswell md yeah thanks for that another question we had um so you just spoke about uh, sir and the service line for peds so is is there a society for PEDS-IR specifically? Yeah, so the Society for Pediatric Interventional Radiology, the letters are SPIR. The, the SPIR was founded about, about 10 years ago now, and we've had meetings, we've, we've had meetings every other year for, since 2009. So um, it's a pretty well-established society now. We have 237, I think, members as of last count. Um, and I'm on the I'm on the board of directors for the SPIR, and I think it's doing amazing um, work in really um, in really educating trainees and medical students about about what IR is all about. It has been in its infancy, I think, best at educating our members and becoming a, a place where we can all get to know one another and network. And I think it's becoming much less inward looking and much more outward looking and it's really um, gotten involved actually throughout the world. Um, so the SPIR uh, website is SPIR.org and you'll you'll see there that um, it's certainly a much smaller society than than the SIR but is um, gaining quite a bit of traction um, in in getting the news to to trainees and medical professionals and also to patients and families about what we do in PEDS IR. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll make sure we include all these links in the show notes of the episode. Along those same lines, just out of curiosity, in the U.S., how many uh, radiologists are there that consider themselves pediatric interventional radiologists? I don't know off the top of my head. I would guess um, fewer than 100. Okay. Something around in that range. At the very first SPIR meeting, we had about 50 people. Last year, we had closer to 100, and that's from all over the world. And of course, not everybody can all come at the same time. So I would say um, greater than 50 or 80, less than 100. That's my best guess. Along those same lines, I know in the adult IR world, there's been an increase in demand for interventional radiologists doing more procedures in smaller hospitals or different hospitals. Are you seeing that same increase in demand for pediatric IR in more places and more often. Definitely. And um, our publication of a workforce survey that was published last year in, um, I think in pediatric radiology, and that was a 10 year follow up. So the workforce survey is, is our way. And, it, and a lot of it has come through the SPIR, our way to have a finger on the pulse of how our subspecialty is doing and it's it's definitely growing more groups need need coverage more groups need interventionalists uh, more groups are, are growing their hospitals are growing um, and I would say that if you're a, a child in America you're closer to a pediatric interventional radiologist than you've ever been and I think that that's that trend um, is is still on the upswing I think it's a I think it's a good field still for a medical student to choose because the demand is, is really high. If you, if you have that level of, of subspecialty um, training and ability under your belt, you're going to be able to find, to find work and, and meaningful work, work that, that um, is really helping to fill a void. 
So, um, Dr. Braswell, if you happen to find yourself in an elevator with a medical student or a resident who was an aspiring pediatric interventional radiologist, and they were going to be spending the day uh, working with you, what advice would you give them uh, to be successful that day? I think if you're a medical student who is, is willing to learn and who is willing to ask questions and have a spark in your eye and a passion for the work, you're going to do exceedingly well. And I, on a, on a given day to day, I'm not going to be able to tell how much you've read or what your grades are, but I'm going to, I'm going to be able to tell if you're excited to be there uh, and if you want to stay late and if you want to um, scrub and if you want to talk to families, I can tell those things. Um, I think that having a passion for the work makes your day go better, but it certainly um, gives our team a, amazing chance to see how you're how you're doing and what kind of person you are and that that to me um if i have to pick pick uh, from a lineup of medical students i'm going to be pick the one who's who's got her hand raised and asking questions and excited to be there awesome and with that dr brazel we want to thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast today and teach uh, all of us trainees more about uh your incredible field Thanks. I have the best job in the world and I, uh, I love to talk about it and I'm uh, happy to engage, engage more on Twitter and I really I do appreciate the chance to come on. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Reswell. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. If you would like to be a part of a podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in interviewing a practicing IR physician, being interviewed by a member of our team, or contributing in any other way, please let us know. Our email address is thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. Please keep an eye out for future episodes in which we'll discuss other topics, including interventional oncology, women's health interventions, IR in private practice, pulmonary embolism, and several others. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.